North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Impossible State Podcast. This is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President and Korea Chair at CSIS. And this episode of The Impossible State is a special crossover episode with the Common Health Podcast with Steve Morrison, our Senior Vice President and Director for the Global Health Policy Center. In this podcast, we look at what is going on with regard to COVID in North Korea as they come out of their lockdown. What do we know, suspect, and do not know about a North Korea still in extreme isolation from COVID from the rest of the world? The status of its COVID outbreak and the government's response the heightened risk of famine, and the exchange of North Korean weapons and ammunition in return for Russian food and energy. So please have a listen to this special crossover episode of the Impossible State Podcast. Thanks very much. I'm delighted again today to be able to welcome Victor Cha, a friend and colleague at CSIS. Victor, thanks so much for making time for us today. Of course, it's my pleasure, Steve. Victor's the Distinguished University Professor at Georgetown, where he also serves as Vice Dean at CSIS, he's a senior advisor and senior vice president uh, in our Asia program here. We wanted to uh, put the focus today on North Korea. Uh, we're going to talk about COVID. We're going to talk about the broader humanitarian crisis. We're going to talk about the geostrategic position here. Let's start with the current COVID situation inside North Korea. How do you describe that? Where do things stand today, Victor? Well, Steve, uh, it's great to be on the podcast and to be with you again. The first thing I would say is we know very little. I mean, North Korea is one of the most closed societies, if not the most closed society in the world. And they've been, let's say, less than transparent about the COVID situation in the country. We do know that they completely locked down the country from the, their borders from any anybody coming in in January of 2020. So basically three years, they were locked down for three years. They started to open up when China ended its lockdown. But there are reports that they have had as many as 5 million fever cases. We don't know uh, if those are COVID related because there is really no testing equipment uh, in North Korea. We also know that they don't have uh, any vaccine infrastructure to speak of on a good day, let alone in the context of a global pandemic and a three-year lockdown in, in the country. Just to put that in context, Victor, 5 million of an estimated population of 25 million? Uh, more like 20, 22 million. I mean, they're, they're reported as fever cases. And again, we don't know uh, if they're COVID-related, but almost certainly we'd have to imagine that they are because, you know, they have they have nothing to mitigate against the virus except to close down, lock down their borders, which they cannot fully control because they're so dependent on China for their economic needs. And almost certainly the vector for the virus came through China. So does this mean that North Korea still qualifies as among the most 
isolated and country with the highest continued likely vulnerability, particularly among its poor rural population? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not an ex- you're an expert in this area more than I am, but I would say yes, at least from my point of view. The combination of the fact that they have no vaccines, they have no testing equipment, they have very little PPE. You combine that with the fact that the country is very poor, malnourished, and doesn't have, as I mentioned earlier, they don't have a robust vaccine infrastructure. You know, that is a very vulnerable population. And it's also, and again, you would know this better than I, Steve, also a potential breeding ground for all sorts of variants of the virus. So I think it's, it is it is quite concerning and it's an alarming situation. Now, in the last year, we had an outbreak In March and April of 2022, the government claimed by August it had brought that under control. I think it was in that period when this 4.8 million cases, they admitted to these fever cases. We don't have data going beyond August of last year. We had another reported outbreak in January of this year where there was a five-day lockdown in the capital. I don't know what happened outside of the capital. And that was occurring roughly at exactly the same time that China had thrown its doors open in December and was beginning to have these colossal surges of infections inside China. I'm assuming that there was some that there was some relationship there between what was happening with the reopening of China and these continued waves. Do you have any idea about that? Again, we don't have any confirmed evidence, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that as soon as China started to open up, that the traffic between China and North Korea grew and that this was the way that the virus came into North Korea. The lockdown of borders that the North Koreans instituted in January 2020 also applied to China. And the government even tried to stop the informal networks of smuggling that was happening between North Korea and China because they were so deathly afraid of the virus entering the country. As China has relaxed their restrictions, and North Korea has also relaxed their border with China because they need a lot of things from China after this two to three year lockdown. You know, that's almost certainly how it came in. The North Koreans have converted. We've, we found through our satellite imagery at CSIS, commercial satellite imagery at CSIS, we have found that North Korea has converted, they converted some air bases up near the border with China and Russia into quarantine storage facilities. So they basically refurbished old air bases and loaded them up with container cars where they would bring things across the border and uh, leave them in, in that quarantine facility for three weeks or so before bringing it into the country. And so uh, they also relaxed some of those restrictions in those quarantine facilities Uh, after China relaxed their lockdown, and that also could be a source of infections in in the cities. You opened by saying the lockdown's been fierce, it's been ongoing, there's been some partial reopening, but that the lockdown really does remain, and the motivations for the lockdown are still very strong in terms of it's not just managing COVID, it's managing people, it's managing their thinking and their media access, it's managing the internal marketplace migration of people. This is something that this regime is having a hard time giving up. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that you can always count on an autocratic regime to make lemonade out of lemons in the sense that they have used the lockdown to further restrict uh, movement, travel, thought in North Korea. Markets in North Korea were quite vibrant, both official and unofficial markets 
as the government has moved away from reliance on the public distribution system. And those markets have you know, brought in all sorts of goods from China and from Russia and really have opened the eyes of North Koreans to the world outside, uh, including smuggled stuff from South Korea, K-pop, uh, Korean dramas, these sorts of things. And so the lockdown has allowed the government to restrict a lot of that. In addition, with the lockdown, the North Koreans basically have kicked out all foreigners, all aid agencies, all NGO groups, and all foreign diplomats, um, which again sort of uh, restricts anybody from seeing what's going on inside of the country. Um, the other major aspect of this that is not getting a lot of attention is that uh, North Korea sends a lot of labor overseas. The state sends labor overseas where they are used in Russia, China, and other places as contract labor usually in violation of ILO um, standards and regulations. And then the money comes back to the government. Many of those people, once North Korea locked down, those, those people after their contracts ended in China, Russia, or wherever, couldn't go back because the country was locked down. So they ended up in sort of this limbo status where they were no longer had a contract in the foreign country. They were not allowed to go back. And so they had to make a living as they were, and they became victims of trafficking, whether human trafficking and labor trafficking. So that's another element on the human rights side that is a result of the government's actions on COVID. Along those lines, before we get back to some of this consideration of reopening, there's been allegations that Russia was recruiting North Koreans to help fill some requirements in the occupied Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. Is there any proof of that happening? We haven't been able to find any proof of that. Uh, what we have found is that after the White House released satellite imagery of a North Korea-Russia railroad crossing, which they said was an arms delivery by North Korea to Russia, to Russia's Wagner Group, we started looking around that time period. The photo of the White House release had a date stamp on it. Um, so we started looking at activity on that border. And what we did find is after the date stamp of that transfer that the White House said happened, we see a real uptick in railway traffic between North Korea and Russia along that border. There are two railroad crossings between North Korea and Russia. We see a big uptick there after the transfer to the Wagner Group uh, of all sorts of different railway cars, um, some of which are distinguishable as coal cars, Others as fuel cars, but there's a lot of traffic taking place between the two sides. The North Koreans clearly have used Russia's desperate situation in the war in Ukraine to their advantage by offering to sell weapons and munitions to Russia in return for food and energy and other sorts of things. Politically, they've also been very willing to support Russia internationally and to recognize Russian gains in the Donbass region. So again, I don't know about those reports, but it wouldn't surprise me if that were the case, because again, I think North Korea sees Russia's situation as an opportunity for North Korea uh, to try to better their lot and draw closer to both Russia and China as a result of the war. Yeah. So there have been some steps taken to reopen partially. The government of North Korea has welcomed back the Chinese ambassador. As you have pointed out, there's accelerated development in the relationships with both Russia and China, increased trade, official and illicit with China, this purported uh, swap of food and energy with the Russians, providing that in return for ammunition and weapons being provided by North Korea to Russia. In all of that process, 
Do we see any improvements in the supply chain of medical commodities or health infrastructure requirements coming into North Korea from China or anywhere else? Any benefits that are accruing to the health system itself within North Korea as this partial reopening happens? I would say probably yes, but again, we don't have hard evidence. I mean, I, there are two thoughts here. The first is that you're right that the North Koreans have allowed the ambassador from uh, the Chinese ambassador to return to post, uh, one of the few exceptions. I'm almost certain that the Chinese lobbied for that to happen because they're worried about the growing ties between North Korea and Russia, as we said, because of the war in Ukraine. There's an irony about China when it comes to North Korea, which is that when the West asks China for help on North Korea, the Chinese always say, oh, you know, we don't have a lot of influence on them. They kind of do their own thing. But at the same time, China jealously guards their influence over North Korea. So when Trump announced in 2018 that he was going to do a summit with Kim Jong-un, at that point, Xi Jinping had not yet met with the North Korean leader, despite the fact the North Korean leader took power uh, six years earlier. After Trump announced he was going to meet Kim Jong-un, Xi Jinping met with Kim Jong-un five times, right? five summits. Again, the news of uh, Russia doesn't really have a big role on the Korean Peninsula lately, but uh, the news of Russia-North Korea arms transfers, I think, probably prompted the Chinese also to ensure that the Russians don't gain too much influence in North Korea, hence probably the interest in having the, uh, the Chinese ambassador go back. I would imagine that in terms of the reopening of some of this trade, more direct trade, again, not using the quarantine facilities as much, but even if they were using the quarantine facilities, the disinfection facilities, that at the top of the list of things that the North Koreans need is going to be food, energy, and medical stocks. I think the lockdown since January 2020 obviously hurt the food situation in North Korea. It didn't appear initially to be the case, like in the first year or so, but I think now there are more and more reports coming out that it's the situation is much worse. But also the lockdown meant that medical stocks of other sorts of things, aspirin and antibiotics, really were wiped out. We did a report earlier, Steve, you'll remember, on the COVID situation about a year ago where NGOs were reporting that overall other sorts of medicines were completely wiped out because of the lockdown. So I imagine that these things are at the top of the list that uh, they're asking for from China now. You know, I read the 38 North report from earlier this year on the food insecurity. It was a very dramatic analysis that argues that North Korea is really teetering on the edge of famine on a scale that would be comparable to what, ha what we saw happen in the late 90s, which was extraordinary. In that sense, COVID sort of taken a backseat to the, the deeper and more urgent and conspicuous problems of hunger and poverty and food insecurity. They are all related in the sense that your health infrastructure, which was very fragile before, has been really set back dramatically. That only further weakens your society and your, and your ability to deal with these shocks. Uh, you know, what do you make of this in terms of the comparison to the 90s, but also this crisis that is looming? Is it changing any of the calculations of the government of how to cope with this? We still see condemnations of the World Food Program, the, of the international humanitarian aid as poisoned candy and the like. 
is that hardline refusal still in place or, or are they reaching a point where they have to really reassess? The short answer to the question is that until NGOs and UN agencies can get back into the country, we won't really have a clear sense of how willingness they are to open to help from the outside. There's certainly what they say publicly, which, as you note, is very hard line. But what we really need to hear is uh, from people on the ground informally about what the North Koreans are saying. On a good day, as we all know, North Korea suffers at least a 1 million metric ton food shortage every year. The South Korean experts estimate that North Korea has produced 180,000 tons less food in 2022 than they did in the previous year. Uh, this is, of course, in addition to the systemic shortage of food that aid agencies predict North Korea uh, generally has. So this creates a, a food insecurity situation that uh, starts to get close to what we were seeing in the 1990s. Of course, that's, that's very concerning. It's not yet mass famine, as we saw in the mid-1990s, but certainly it's quite concerning. Now, you rightfully pointed out that the international presence is really minimal. Ten friendly embassies, that's about it. WFP, WHO, UNICEF, none of them have a presence of any significance inside the country. Gavi made various efforts during the crisis to open dialogue around using the COVAX facility to get vaccines in. That went nowhere. Is there any hope of this changing? Is there any hope of a multilateral option where some of these UN agencies could find a way quietly to begin to reenter? That would seem to me to be the essential first step. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's the essential first step. You know, all these groups want to go back in. When I was in Seoul recently, uh, I met a number of the European ambassadors that were basically pre-positioning in Seoul, waiting to get the okay to go back into North Korea. I think many of them want to go back in. And as soon as they do, I think we'll, we'll start hearing a lot more reports about the situation on the ground. I mean, even with the Chinese, the North Koreans have been very reluctant uh, to accept any sort of assistance. In late 2021, North Korea actually rejected vaccines, as you know, uh, Chinese vaccines offered through COVAX, the Sinovac vaccine, probably because they were doing their own research online and saw that the vaccine was not that effective compared to the mRNA vaccines. Uh, I think the Chinese still have been providing some help in that regard. I would imagine that once these groups start to get in and once they start talking to the North Koreans, there will be more calls for uh, some sort of multilateral effort, whether it's through UN ag agencies or well-established or NGOs that have a well-established presence in North Korea to try to bring some assistance into the country. But until they're willing to open up, they can't do that. In the past, if people couldn't meet with the North Koreans in the country for whatever reason, they could sometimes meet with North Koreans in China or in Europe or in Russia. But of course, that can't happen now because North Koreans even official North Koreans, are very, very restricted in terms of any travel they can do. Uh, and then getting back into the country, you know, would be under the strictest circumstances of quarantines, you know, house quarantines or quarantines in facilities that would basically make travel impossible. You remember uh, back in the 
Trump administration when there was a rise in, in missile launches and there was a crackdown on through the UN Committee of Commodities coming across the border and there was a debate about the humanitarian exemptions and Deputy Secretary of State Steve Began got involved at that time to try and ease some of the humanitarian access, even while things were really tough on the missiles front. We're in another situation where we're, we've seen this massive increase in missile launches and other related things that have people really on the edge of their seats. Is this too scaring off or further constricting humanitarian access or even the willingness of people to step forward and talk about this? I mean, the situation with respect to nuclear missiles is pretty dire at the moment. Uh, yes, it's a very serious and alarming situation. In 2022, North Korea did more missile tests than the, in a single year than they've ever done in any other single year. Nearly 100 missile tests, which is really unprecedented. Uh, and in the first quarter of 2023, they seem on pace to at least match that, if not break it. Most likely, they will do a seventh nuclear test, probably of tactical nuclear weapons, and they will test uh, more long-range ballistic missiles that are capable of reaching the United States. This is a very serious situation. It's not getting a lot of attention publicly uh, because of the uh, focus on the war in Europe, as well as uh, China's buildup along the Taiwan Straits. This is where all the attention is being focused now. But this is a very dangerous and dire situation that, one, completely crowds out the humanitarian and the human rights discussion when it comes to North Korea. There's very little that NGOs can say or do uh, asking for an exemption at this point is also meaningless because North Korea is not letting anybody back into the country. So it's completely crowded all of all of that out. I would say that I think the administration, even as they are focused on Ukraine and on China-Taiwan, uh, is quite concerned about the situation. I think in many ways they're at a loss in terms of what to do because they're doing all the things they need to do in terms of increasing, ramping up, exercising with Korea, with Japan, trilaterally, doing more to assure South Koreans and Japanese of the U.S. nuclear umbrella against this unstoppable North Korean nuclear threat, continuing to implement sanctions. They're doing all the things that they need to do. But on the engagement side, the North Koreans are just not answering the phone. They're not picking up the phone. The Biden administration has both privately and publicly made clear that they have tried to reach out to North Korea many times uh, and it's received uh, uh, no response at all. And the administration do does not want to be accused of uh, being strategic patience 2.0, which was strategic patience was the moniker that was given to the end of the Obama administration's policy towards North Korea, which was just to sanction, sanction, sanction and do nothing in terms of engagement. The hypothesis to be tested behind that was that all of this heavy sanctioning might weaken North Korea and bring them to the table. I think that argument has been somewhat put into question by the fact that North Korea has sanctioned itself since January of 2020 to the present. <laughs> and, and it's not like they're... They've out obama to Obama. Right. Or they've out John Bolton's, John Bolton, if you will. And it's not like they've come to the table. If anything, they're testing even more than they did during Obama. So, so I don't know. I mean, it raises the question of whether the humanitarian angle is possible. I mean, if you think about it, 
we know there's one thing that North Korea wants and needs, right? And that is protection against the COVID virus. And, you know, we've talked about this before. I mean, they've rejected and or reluctantly accepted the Sinovac vaccine, but they know that the gold standard is the mRNA vaccine. Is there any evidence that the elites have acquired the mRNA and Paxlovid, the therapy? Yeah, we don't we don't know. I mean, all all we do know is that um, you know North Korea has a very active cyber hacking game, and they have tried to hack these companies. They've tried to hack Pfizer to try to access the vaccine uh, knowledge about the vaccine. So, so we know from that activity, and cyber hacking work is the tip of the spear for them. That is the way they've continued to make money during this two three year lockdown is largely through cyber theft and in particular cryptocurrency. So this is the tip of the spear, the leading edge of what they're doing to gain access to the outside world. And they clearly tried to hack Pfizer. So I would imagine they want these vaccines pretty badly, uh, even though the overall crisis has come down a little bit. In North Korea's case, you know, they are not in great shape compared to you know, where we are here in the United States or where they are in South Korea, Japan, or, or even in China, I would say. So what I hear you saying is that direct U.S. options with respect to COVID, humanitarian crisis, rebuilding health infrastructure, rebuilding basic presence of international organizations and NGOs, that the direct options are pretty limited. If anything, the policy of, and the U.S. has tried to get their attention, they don't, they don't get much of a response. It seems more likely that the interlocutors who, are, who may, might be able to pursue something would be the Chinese themselves in their dialogue and, and perhaps leadership at the UN. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly those would be the, the ways to try, I think. But again, those sorts of efforts will never be linked to uh, the nuclear program. China will never link any dialogue on humanitarian or humanitarian assistance with North Korea's nuclear missile program. China will never link humanitarian assistance with North Korea's nuclear missile program. UN aid agencies are not going to link a food security issue with the program. The United States, uh, for better or for worse, uh, and we saw the precedent set by Obama, would either tacitly or explicitly as a way to establish a dialogue with North Korea would want to see the testing stopped and would want to see it as a platform to try to engage more broadly and gain access to the nuclear program that way. I mean, again, the North Koreans don't appear to be interested in sanctions relief. They don't appear to be interested in the fanfare of a summit with a U.S. president as they had with Trump. That ended up being very embarrassing for them in the end because they couldn't make a deal. But they do need PPE. They do need COVID testing kits. They do need antivirals and they do need vaccine. You know, this is for certain. And so it does raise the question of whether that's something that uh, the United States should try. I mean, frankly, I haven't really thought this through. I, I've only thought of it as we've had this conversation. It's, it sort of seems like I was, I've been trying to think of areas that the, North, that the U.S. could engage North Korea on. And out of all the things that are out there that North Korea has explicitly rejected, the one thing that they have not explicitly rejected is access to these gold standard or blue ribbon standard vaccines. 
Now, who knows? You know, maybe they feel like they're over it. They won't need it anymore. And what they need are other things like food and medical stocks in general. But we're not making any progress on the nuclear issue. And we're not making any progress on sanctions. So we got to try something else, new or different, before, you know, the, this, this situation gets even worse than it is now. Thank you. Victor, we always try and end these conversations by asking our guest to offer us an answer to the question of where do you find optimism? Where do you find hope in this situation? So it's very difficult. As you can imagine, I've given many talks on North Korea, and it's always difficult to find something that's optimistic and hopeful. In the end, I would say the most optimistic and hopeful thing for the regime would be the point at which the markets will be allowed to function more normally again, because the markets are the best thing that are helping the lives of everyday North Koreans and giving them both the sustenance that they need to live every day, whether it's food or clothing or medicine, but also giving them a much more independence of thought, independence of mind from the state, separating the way they think from the way the state wants them to think. And that's about the best thing that could be happening in, in North Korea today. A lot of it's been suppressed because of COVID. But as the government itself says that they have uh, beat COVID in August of 2022, they said they beat COVID. They no longer have the excuses to keep the market suppressed. So that, I think, is the ray of light. Thank you, Victor. Thanks, Steve. This has been a great conversation. Great. My pleasure. Good to be with you. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.